is a basic spiritual exercise that God uses in our lives as men to form us after His own image. There's a lot of different ways to think about spiritual disciplines. One of the ways you can think about them as as if they are uh, diet and exercise for your soul. Now that may be a very negative connotation for many of you. I get that this morning. Especially as you're eating donuts, right? Diet and exercise for your soul. Spiritual disciplines help curb the bad appetites in us. They help curb the, the bad appetites like lust and pride and greed. And at the same time, they help strengthen the good appetites, dependence on God, compassion for others, clarity of mind in regard to God's will for our lives. They curb the bad things and they help strengthen the good muscles. The Apostle Paul, many times throughout his letters, actually uses the illustration of an athlete in training. An athlete in training. How many athletes do we have here this morning? I just wanted to see if you would, if you would admit it. Okay, how many former athletes do we have? I was really hoping for one hand to go up. One hand to go up. Okay. We have a few former athletes, right? So, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm an incredible athlete. I totally get the image, all right? So um, here, here's what Paul writes. Some of you will get this. Paul says, look, we run as athletes to receive an imperishable reward. And then Paul says, I discipline my own body and keep it under control. Then listen, lest after preaching, I myself become disqualified. In other words, Paul says this. In order for me, as an apostle, to live the Christian life, my giftedness is not enough. It's not enough that I can preach. I have to train myself to live the Christian life. Listen to what Luke writes about Jesus in his gospel. Luke chapter 5, verse 16, But he, that is Jesus, would withdraw to lonely places, and he would pray. Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus went to the mountain, a mountain to pray, and he, he prayed there all night, all night, to his heavenly Father. If Paul, the apostle to the entire Gentile world, if Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, if they needed disciplines like fasting and prayer and solitude, then how much more do we? How much more do we need regular training to live in the fullness of God's mercy and love for us? You'll notice in our passage this morning, it's not even a question. So Jesus picks out three major spiritual disciplines that have been around since the beginning of time. These are consensus disciplines. There are more. These are consensus ones. He picks out three major ones. And what does he say when he introduces each one? He says, when you do these things. He doesn't say if. He says, when, when you, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. In other words, they're not optional. In order for us to be changed by the gospel, in order for us to be sustained as men according to the gospel, no matter who we are, no matter where we are in our journey, the Apostle Paul and you this morning, okay, no matter where you are, in order for that to happen, you have to engage in the practices that are at the very heart of the gospel. And Jesus mentions just a few of the most basic this morning to train us in the ways of God. Prayer, fasting, which is probably a little bit more unfamiliar for us, and giving to the needy. Now here's the thing, that is overtly what you find on your handout this morning. 
But the passage this morning is less about these three disciplines. In fact, I'm not going to return to them. (laughs) It's less about these three disciplines than it is another probably more unfamiliar discipline in particular, and that is the discipline of secrecy. So you'll notice the refrain that occurs over and over in the passage. The word that you'll find in each of the three paragraphs is the word secret. You'll find it twice in each paragraph. Secret. The discipline of secrecy. One author defines the discipline of secrecy this way. She writes, secrecy is practicing the spirit of Jesus Christ reflected in hiddenness, in anonymity, in a lack of display, in the keeping of confidences. In hiddenness, in anonymity, in a lack of display, in the keeping and holding of confidences. So here's what we're going to do this morning. For the next few minutes, I want us to talk about why we so badly need secrecy as a spiritual discipline and what that means for us practically. Okay? Let's begin this morning with verse 1 by heeding the warning that Jesus gives us. I want you to notice that again. It frames the rest of the passage. Jesus says there in verse 1, chapter 6, Beware of practicing your piety, your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So from the outset, we can say this, that the discipline of secrecy, if disciplines are given to help curb certain appetites and strengthen others, we can say that the discipline of secrecy is given to help strengthen us to heed this warning from Jesus. So what is the warning? Well, the warning in its most basic sense is is against living your life for the applause of other people. The warning is against living your life to the praise of others, to be seen by them. To live in such a way that what would motivate you at, at the core of who you are is other people, what they think about you. The, the simplest way to say it is this. It's, uh, the warning is against living your life as if you were on a stage. And I recognize the irony for me this morning of saying that. You know, I get that. Living your life as if your life were on a stage. In fact, that's exactly what the word hypocrite means. So you'll notice that Jesus uses the word hypocrite in verses 2 and 5 and 15, and we have extremely negative views of hypocrites, right? I mean, we, we, and let me tell you, um, you don't have to be a religious person to be a hypocrite, okay? Um, uh, uh, hypocrisy is not the property of religion, certainly not only of Christianity, all right? We can all be hypocrites in a lot of different ways when what we say is not uh, mirrored or paralleled by how we live. But he uses that word. It wasn't always a negative connotation. In the ancient world, that word was used um, as a designation. The Greek word was used as, as, as a designation for an actor. Someone who was always on a stage. Someone who wore a mask. Someone who became someone else in public rather than who they really were in private. So one of the questions that, that this forces us to confront this morning for ourselves is this. Do you ever find yourself putting on a mask to hide your true identity in order for other people to be pleased by you? Do you ever find yourself wearing a mask so that other men or other women, your wife, whoever else, will be pleased with you? And Jesus tells us that this temptation is so ubiquitous, this temptation is so powerful and pervasive that it it infects even our best moments. 
right? Moments like fasting and prayer and giving. And so at the very outset, Jesus says, look, beware of a life, a spiritual life that is complete with these critically important spiritual disciplines in which you are on a stage to be applauded by others. Beware. Take care of watching that you are living your life for the pleasure of others. Now that is the letter of the warning. Okay? Let's just talk for a minute what's beneath, about what's beneath it. I want you to ask this question, think about this question to yourself. Why is it um, that we want to be seen by others? Why do we long to be seen? Why would Jesus have to issue the warning in the first place? What is underneath our desire for recognition? A pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on these verses says this. He says, look, ultimately, our reason for pleasing men around us is that we may please ourselves. The real reason that we long to please people around us is that we may please ourselves. In other words, Lloyd-Jones says that in all of our mask-wearing, in all of our praise-seeking, it's really not others that we care about at all. It's us. We ultimately long to be satisfied with who we are. To know in our heart of hearts that we are indeed pleasing. To know that we are okay. We please others ultimately, he says, to please ourselves. So let me tell you, one way to try and heed Jesus' warning is to say this. Look, if living for others, if living to please others is ruinous for a person, then I need to become so satisfied in myself that I no longer need an audience at all. If living to please other people is so ruinous to a person, and I've seen that be true, then I need to become so satisfied in myself that I no longer need an audience at all. I need to kill the desire, to kill the desire to care what other people think of me by only caring most of all what I think of myself. You have to find happiness within yourself. Have you ever heard that before? You need to find happiness within yourself. That is a modern translation of an ancient philosophy called Stoicism. Okay, there's nothing new under the sun. Stoicism says, look, where you sit this morning, you have all the resources that you need to be truly happy. And the only way, men, you'll ever be happy, the only way that you'll ever be free is to stop getting your heart so entangled with the things that are outside of yourself. Stop getting your heart so entangled with what other people think about you, (laughs) with the approval of other people. You have to stop needing anything from anyone else. Look, you will never be a hypocrite if you never really need an audience, right? Now let me tell you why this is a dangerous solution. Uh, There is someone very close to me in my own life who has walked this path, And here is the yield. It is impossible to shut yourself off from needing others without also growing cold to their needs as well. It is is impossible to shut yourself off from needing other people without also growing cold to their needs as well. So that if you learn to say, look, I don't care what anyone else thinks about me, how anyone sees me, what anyone else says about me, not only will you end up starving the people pleaser in you, but you will also end up starving compassion in you as well. Inadvertently, what you'll do is you'll sever the connection between you and others in both directions. 
C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said it's like locking up your heart in a casket. So what you'll end up doing is you'll end up avoiding all these entanglements, all these needs, all these desires. But in that casket, he writes, not only will your heart never be broken, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. You cannot cease needing others and expect your heart, your soul, to stay alive to the ways that they may need you. That's the first problem. It's a spiritual one. Okay? The second problem is more of a theological one. And here it is. From the opening chapters, we can't ignore this, the Bible says that we were made to know ourselves in the eyes of others. From the very beginning, the Bible says that you are made to know yourself through the eyes of others. Let me put it more strongly. The Bible says that we were made in the image, uh, that we are social beings, made in the image of a social God, an intrinsically social God, a Trinitarian God, in such a way that just like God, our very personhood, our personal identities are only grounded in the sight of another. Now, if that sounds too complex for 7.30 a.m., let me put it even more simply, okay? You need an audience to know yourself. You actually need an audience in your life to know who you are and to know whether you are okay or not. And you say this morning, that sounds a little weird. Well, let me go back for a moment and just give you some big picture context. In Genesis 2, we read that Adam and Eve are both naked. Okay? They're naked. That means that they are utterly vulnerable before one another. Okay? Everything about them is in the other person's view. And the Bible says they are naked. Not only are they naked, but they're also unashamed. That is, for both Adam and Eve, for both male and female, it was their joy to be seen. It was their joy, their pleasure to be recognized, to be affirmed in the eyes of the other one. And then Genesis 3 happens. And what happens in Genesis 3, if you know the story, rebellion breaks out, right? And it screws everything up. It royally screws everything up. Not just a bend in the way things are, but a fundamental break in the way things are. And if you know the story, what is the first thing mentioned after the eating of the apple? After the rebellion? What? Their eyes were open, and what did they see? They were naked, and what did they do? They sewed fig leaves, and they made loincloths, and they hid themselves from the presence of God. So let's recap for a moment. Adam and Eve were made to be seen. They were made to know themselves fully in the sight of one another, and now all of a sudden, from Genesis 3 on, their lives have become this gigantic game of cat and mouse. Look at this part of me. You can't see this part. Here I am. Now I feel like I need to hide. Social life, life together, becomes a gigantic game of hide and seek. And so fast forward to the Sermon on the Mount. What we now give people, Jesus says, what we give people, what we let people see about us is always a calculated reveal. It's a calculated reveal. We, we premeditate, we calculate what we want to stay hidden and what we want other people to see. Look, you can see this part of me, but you can't see this part. Uh, you can know this about me, but I don't want you to know this. We are, we are mask wearers, fundamentally. 
As the ancient Greeks said, we are, hip, we are uh, Hippocrates. We are hypocrites, and for good reason. Listen to me. On the one hand, we are not really sure that we can trust one another in our vulnerability, right? On the one hand, we're not really sure that we can trust one another, but on the other hand, oh, do we still need someone else to tell us that we are okay. The need to be seen for who we really are, that need is still there, but the integrity of the relationship to actually tell us who we really really are, the integrity of the relationship has been lost. We can't see others well, and they can't see us. Okay, the warning, listen to me, the warning that Jesus gives us here is not fundamentally about being recognized. It is not fundamentally about public recognition. The warning is fundamentally about who has the power to see you this morning in such a way that it really makes you free. That's what the warning is about. Uh, This is not about having your name on a building. (laughs) This is not about someone overhearing you praying in public at lunch. At some point, God is going to compare you to the stars in the heaven. At some point, God is going to look at you and call you his bride that is adorned for him on our wedding day. In this very sermon, just verses before, uh, Jesus says that you are to be a city on the hill. What do all of those three have in common? A bride, the stars, and a city on a hill. They were made to be what? Looked at. Recognized affirmed. The real problem is not recognition. The real problem is that we are searching for an audience. We are searching for someone to see us in the way that only God can and tell us who we really are. And what Jesus is telling you this morning in this sermon is that only God can see you as you really are through the game of hide and seek. Only God can ground your identity and assure you that you are okay. Because only God himself has provided the real solution to counter your real shame and vulnerability. John puts it like this, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the covering for our sins. To be the covering for our sins. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we might be called the children of God. In other words, John says, you've got to see what God's done for you. God has covered your sins and he has made you his sons. And this is exactly where Jesus is pointing you this morning. Jesus is saying that you have the audience you need. You never have to put on a mask. You have a satisfied father who sees you and who rewards you. And so practice your piety. Practice all of your life, quorum Deo, that is before the face of God, as if God were the only one watching. You don't have to not care what other people think. You only need to care most about what he thinks. You only need to care most about what he thinks. I've told you this story before, but it's worth sharing again because it's so ingrained in my own imagination. Uh, A friend of mine named Nathan, who's a pastor in Memphis, um, told me a story once about a time where he worked in a youth camp one summer, and he took a group of his youth kids in the middle of the week to an amusement park in Memphis, Liberty Land, now defunct. And he was there and um, uh, um, ridden all the rides, small amusement park, sat down in the middle of the day to get some rest, and he noticed as the people were passing by that crowds had gathered around this scene a dozen yards from him or so. So he went to the scene to find out what was going on to check things out. And he noticed that um, as he walked up from behind that the people in the crowd 
were whispering and pointing and giggling and laughing. And he walked up and he saw there um, people gathered around in a circle looking at a mist machine. You know what a mist machine is? Hot days in amusement parks, sometimes they'll have these machines that spray water like mist just to cool you off. And he said people were looking at the mist machine and they were watching this father playing with his young daughter. Only the daughter was uh, terribly misshapen. Uh, She was deformed, she was distorted, so badly that one side of her body was completely uh, elongated, longer than the other part, and so as she danced in the water with her dad, she looked extremely, extremely awkward, extremely distorted. As Nathan got in the crowd, he he noticed that, you know, the few gathered there who were laughing and pointing and giggling, it made him incredibly angry at what was going on. But then he says it hit him. He looked at the little girl, and she was oblivious to it all. She could not have cared less. She was splashing, and she was dancing, and she was playing with her dad under the mist machine. At one point, her dad picked her up. He put her on his shoulders. And they were there spraying under the mist, and everything, he said, was okay for her. And she was okay. Because in that moment, she had the irrevocable smile, the delight, the pleasure of her father. And that was enough. It was enough for her. The attention of her father was enough to hold her own attention and to free her from caring about the stares of everyone else. Men, it is, it is one thing to say that you believe in God. It is an entirely different thing to know that you are the apple of his eye. It is one thing to say that you believe in God. It is, an, it is entirely another thing to believe and to know that you are the very apple of his eye. Do you know that? Do you know that your father sees you in secret? As Jesus says, that is beyond the game of cat and mouse, beyond the mask wearing. He sees you in secret, and you are a delight to him. What does that mean for us practically this morning? We don't have much time, but I do want to tell you what it has to do with the practice of secrecy, just for a minute or so. Let me reiterate earlier what I said about secrecy. The discipline of secrecy is this. It is purposefully doing things that are hidden, that are anonymous, that are lacking in display. Purposefully doing things that are hidden, that are anonymous, that are lacking in display, in order to strengthen this appetite in us. To strengthen us to find our deepest satisfaction in what God thinks of us above all else. The discipline of secrecy is given to help strengthen in us our desire to find in in God our deepest satisfaction. You'll notice in the first paragraph about giving that Jesus mentions an extra temptation beyond the public one. It's the only time he mentions it. He says, look, not only don't let your giving be seen by men, but he says this, don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You see that? In other words, even in secrecy, here's what Jesus is saying. Even in secrecy, there will be a temptation for you to dwell most on what you think about yourself. Your right hand and left hand. Right? It would be a temptation to say, look, ah, I cannot believe how incredibly generous I am. And to think about that, to dwell on that. And Jesus is saying, let that go. You have to let that go. As one author writes, we are learning to place our public relations department entirely in the hands of God. 
allowing him to decide when our deeds will be known and when our light will be noticed. He goes on to say, you'll notice in the gospel stories, the gospel stories tell us how hard that Jesus and his friends tried. How hard they tried to avoid the crowds. And at the same time, how badly they failed. If possible, he says, maybe it is better. And there in your own attempts, in the secret, you will cultivate a faith that is impossible to hide. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first God as the secret and primary audience of your piety, your whole life. And let him add anything else that he wants to add in his own timing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our um, time together this morning as men. We pray that some of the things that we've talked about, that we've read, would hit home for us, O Lord. Um, That you would use these things to form us and to shape us into men who love you, who seek you first, and who allow the chips to fall where they may under your providential uh, and loving hand. God, we ask that, um, uh, that you would give us grace, that we would hear once again um, strongly and loudly the promise that you delight in us um, as our Father in heaven. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.